Um, now, now, this week, now how many of you know that sometimes um, speakers speak because they have to, and sometimes speakers speak because they actually have something to say? There, there's two different things. And this morning, I'm so excited about what we're going to talk about. I thought I was going to explode last night preparing for it because I know that what we're going to talk about this morning, I'm here this morning not because I have to be. I'm here because I actually have something to say. And and that is a far better thing. Um, And and this week is the same way. Like I've I've been studying. I'm staying with uh, Robert and Liesl and I've been studying um, in in the room because um, when when I got an itinerary and and it had like um, 21 different one-hour preaches in there, I I realized that that was everything I know. (laughs) And um, (laughs) and so so I've been really preparing hard, and we've got a lot of new stuff, and it's just going to be great. This week is not because I have to be here. It's because I actually have something to say. And um, it's called called Leadership, and um, I did an Eight This series on leadership. It's back there at the back, and and you can pick that up. But we've also got some new stuff that we're going to be covering. Um, be teaching you some things about the kingdom and about being in the kingdom now and that sort of thing. And you're not going to want to miss this week. If you come out, if you make the time to come out on a weeknight, I promise you we'll give you a steak every single night, okay? Every single night. But you can pick this up back there at the back. Okay, um, you ready to go? You ready to go? Not home, you ready to go this. Um, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I started thinking about the cross a while back. And, and, I, and, and I'm staying with my, my group in Charleston, and um, we, we were just brainstorming on the cross. And, and I started asking myself hard questions on the cross. And, and one of the questions I asked myself was this, where have I embraced the cross that saves me, but I've neglected the cross I've been commanded to pick up every day? Let, let, let me say it this way. Like we love, we love the cross that saves us and forgives us and heals us and lets us into heaven. Like we love that cross. And the reason we love that cross is because Jesus bore that cross for us and we don't have to do anything about that. And, and there, so there's the pressures off in that sense. Like we, we love that cross and we should love that cross. Like yes, amen. We get to go to heaven and not go to hell. We get to be forgiven instead of guilty. How many of you, like that's a preferable thing. Like heaven, hell, choose heaven. Like come on. Like and we say yes, amen. But the, but the bigger deal is this, is where have we embraced the cross that saves us, but there's a second cross that we've been commanded to pick up and we neglect that one. Let, let, me ask, let me ask it this way. Where have we wanted mercy for ourselves, but justice for everybody else? Like we stuff something up really bad and we're like, oh God, have mercy. Oh God, have mercy. Oh God, have mercy. But someone else messes up and we're like, God will get them for that. <laughs> yeah. Like, like what, what, what part of us enjoys the fact that when major men of God fall into sin, that it's all over the internet and we read it. And, and, and if we had done the same thing, which some of us have done the same thing, we just didn't get caught. We want mercy for ourselves, but why do we want justice for other people? Wait, the, the Bible says this, it says, judgment without mercy will be given to all those who aren't merciful, for mercy triumphs over justice. So, so where, where have we done this? Where have we embraced the cross that saves me and heals me and forgives me? Where have we um, put ourselves on the end? Where have we put a fish on our car? Where have we done that? But yet over here, we will degrade the intelligence of someone who disappoints us. Like, let me say it this way. D- does the girl at KFC know we're saved even if she messes up our order? Uh, <laughs> does, does, um, does when someone cuts you off in traffic... 
do you point your finger at the sky? And then when you go around them the second time, they see the fish on your car. Uh, Does your husband know you're saved even if he leaves a wet towel on the floor? Does your wife know you're saved even if she disappoints you? Like where have we embraced the cross that saves us, but we've neglected the cross that says don't gossip and slander people? Where have we embraced the cross that saves us, but we've neglected the cross that says to take care of the poor is a high honor? Where, where, have, we done, where have we done that? In Exodus chapter 3, I want to talk about one aspect of the cross this morning. Just one, because we only have time for one. I just want to talk about one aspect of the cross, one aspect of our salvation that might be a little different than, than, than what we've always thought. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, Exodus 3, verse 7 and 8, that the Lord is, uh, is speaking to a group of people who've been enslaved for 430 years. Like 430 years, that's a long time, man. That's a long time. That's twice as long as America has been a nation. I don't know how long New Zealand has been a, a, a nation, but I, it, not that long. And, and so you're talking a long time, this group of people oppressed, marginalized slaves, make bricks, make bricks without straw. These people were oppressed horribly, and this is what it says. The Lord said... I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. Now, if you're one of these people who like to take notes, if you want to note the word slave drivers, that that salvation to a Hebrew person was not just about going to heaven one day. As a matter of fact, for the first 1,500 years of church history, like from the first 1,500 years from Acts chapter 2, if you asked anybody, why did Jesus die on the cross? No one would have said Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Although that was true, and that's part of it. And we say, yes, amen, we're all about individual forgiveness, aren't we? Come on. I mean, absolutely, that's that's a fact. But the bigger issue is this. People said Jesus died on the cross to defeat the devil, the enemy of our soul, and his entire way of life. That, That the cross was not primarily about heaven and hell, although that's what we've made it about. And that is true. It is yes, amen, we get to go to heaven, we get to be forgiven. Yes, absolutely. But a bigger issue in that was this, was that Jesus didn't just die to forgive us of sins. Jesus died so that sin could not be our master anymore. Let's say it another way. Jesus didn't die just to forgive us. Jesus died so we could be slave driver free here, now, today. If you take a Strong's Concordance and you just do a word study on the word salvation or saved or rescued or delivered, 90 some odd percent of all the uses of those words have nothing to do with heaven and hell. It has everything to do with being slave driver delivered. Something's ruling my life other than God and God steps down without me deserving it and he takes the slave driver away. And my only, my only responsibility in that is faith and repentance to change my mind so that I don't keep going back to the slave driver over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. That I don't keep opening up my life to the same slave driver. And every time I open up my life to the same slave driver, Jesus shows up and he delivers me from it because his mercy's new every day. But when I choose to truly repent, that salvation is actually here. 
Sometimes we can be guilty in a Western culture of teaching a salvation that someday, like someday the lion and the lamb, someday no sickness, crying, no shame, someday, someday no more tears, someday, someday, and it has this aspect to it. And Yes, how many of you know that someday that is true, that that is a true thing, but if we're not careful, we're guilty of teaching a salvation that says, hey, get saved, get saved, get saved, and then one day you'll get to die and it'll all get better. <laughs> that, 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 that salvation that Jesus is talking about is all about being slave driver free. He says, so I'm concerned about their slave drivers and I'm also concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. The word rescue there is, is the same word for, that we get salvation from or saved. So I have come down to save them, rescue them, deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So, so in this passage, Egypt represented suffering. This is not just a story about a group of people who've been in slavery for 430 years. It is about them, but it's also a story about me, and it's a story about you, and it's a story about our tendency to suffer under slave drivers. It's a story about suffering. It's a story about crying out to God. It's a story about God hearing you in that situation. But one of the things we might think is when we're in the land of suffering and crying out, we think God doesn't hear us there, that we've done something bad, so God doesn't hear us. And in actuality, when we're in Egypt and in suffering and in crying out, that's the exact place that God does hear us. It's a land of slave drivers. It's a place where something is driving our life other than God. Maybe that, maybe that driver is anger. I mean, don't raise your hand, but how many of us suffer with the slave driver at times of anger? We just do. And I said this last year, but it's worth repeating again because we need to know this, that anger is not an emotion you can afford. When you get angry, you lose 25% of your IQ because all of your blood leaves your brain and goes to the major muscle groups to prepare for a fight. You also exert a certain enzyme in your brain that takes away 25% of your IQ, which for the average person in the room would make you retarded. (laughs) Think about it. I know men who get so angry they can't even complete a sentence, so they just grunt. (laughs) And women, y'all do y'all's thing too. And, and, so, and so if you're here today and you're married and, and you get into an argument and both of you get angry, you've got two mentally retarded people trying to solve a problem. <laughs> Maybe your slave driver's rejection. Maybe your slave driver is impulse spending to cope. Has anybody besides me ever bought something you can't afford with money you don't have to impress people you don't like? And then like a month later, the newness wears off and you're like, I'm still making payments on this. What am I doing? We trade everything for those kind of things. How about the slave driver of just one more piece of cake? May as well hit everybody. <laughs> how, about, how about slave drivers? How about the slave driver of debt? How about the slave driver? Like what is our slave driver? Have we ever been there? And, and so one of the messages of the gospel is this, is that hope can flow in situations like that. Hope flows in situations like that. And it started all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, 
This is, um, this is in the Garden of Eden, and, and, and it's kind of making a description of this. Now, remember, these were Hebrew people who were enslaved for 430 years. They would have memorized all of these oral traditions that have been passed down from generation, all of these stories that have been passed down from generations to generations. And it says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. It says, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. And the name of the first river was Pishon, and it winded through the entire land of Kavila, where there was gold, and the gold of that land was perfect. And the gold of that land was perfect. So, so, so out of Eden, the Talmud says that, that when Adam and Eve um, fell, that when they were kicked out of the garden, they, um, they, put, they spent 40 days with their feet in the river Pishon. Now, now, the word Pishon means hope. It just means hope. So it says there was a river called Hope, and it winded through the entire land of Kavila. Kavila just meant suffering. So, so, so to a Hebrew person, anytime you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called Hope somewhere. You just got to go find it. That anytime you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called Hope winding through the whole thing. You just got to go find it. The last thing you need to do is give up. The last thing you need to do to give up is give up. To fail in a Hebrew mindset is just to quit trying. Because if you're in the land of suffering, there's a river called hope somewhere in it. You just got to go find it. Now the question then becomes this. How do you know when you've come across the river of hope? Like when you're in the land of suffering, how do you know when you've come across the river of hope? Because there's lots of rivers in the land of suffering. Some of them are going to take you to places you don't want to go. How do you know when you're in the river called hope? How do you know that? And it says this, you can identify the river of hope when there's perfect gold in the riverbed. There's going to be perfect gold in the riverbed. Now, I did some research on this. Perfect gold, I think it's called zebarilum gold, it's actually not a gold color at all. It's, It's a clear substance and very soft, very soft. And if you hold it up to perfect light, only the shortest wavelength of light can get through it so it looks blue. It looks blue, which explains to me why I've been taught my whole life that the color of heaven is blue. Because you've got perfect gold and perfect light. So it looks blue. Now, it's also very soft, so you can shave it down into powder. You can shave it down into little sprinkles. And if you take one little tweezer and pick up one little piece of perfect gold, and you can drop it into 100,000 parts of water, and it'll turn all of the water blood ruby red. When perfect gold and water bond, it turns the water blood red. Now, now think about this. If there's a river called hope, and it's flowing through the land of suffering, and you want to be able to identify the river called hope, and the river called hope has perfect gold in the riverbed, what color is the river? Red. The, the Hebrew language originally was pictures. Every Hebrew letter was a picture. So every Hebrew word is a comic strip. You with me? So, every, so, so when, when the word gold is three letters, the first letter is the picture of an eye. It, it just, uh, uh, see, behold, it's a picture of an eye. The second letter is the picture of a harvester harvesting supply. And, and the third picture is the picture of a house or a house of God. So when a Hebrew person read the word gold, this is what they saw. Behold, the one who brings the substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God. So when a Hebrew person read Genesis 2, this is what they would read. Hope flows through suffering because, behold, the one who brings a substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God through a river of blood. So, so to a Hebrew person, 
to a Hebrew person, when water turns red, hope is flowing through suffering. That that is the river Pishon. Fast forward way later. You've got the same group of people. They've just gotten larger. You've got the same group of people. And they're in slavery and in suffering in Egypt. They're in the land of suffering. And they cried out to God because of their suffering. And God decides to do something about it. What was the first plague? All the water turned to blood. To the Egyptians, that was a curse. It was a slap in the face of, in the face of their gods. But to the Hebrew people, there would have been a buzz through the whole camp. Did you hear? Water's turning to blood. Hope's fixing to flow through suffering. Pishon, hope is here. Salvation is not someday. Salvation is here, now, today. Hope's flowing through suffering. Hey, hey, there would have been this buzz through the whole camp. Through a series of, of somewhat unfortunate events, some things happen. And, and God gets uh, the people out of Israel, and they're all behind Moses. And Moses leads them to the banks of the Red Sea. The Red Sea. Hope flows through suffering. All this cool stuff happens. We'll talk about that later this week. And, and, and the, the waters part, and they go through, and then the waters come down, and, and they, they, they destroy the biggest army in the world in one swoop, which changed the course of world history because you can't take the biggest army out and replace them. I mean, if CNN and the internet would have been around back then, the whole world would have swooped down on Egypt. So, so they, they get through that, and then they end up at Mount Sinai, and, um, and, and Moses goes up, which is like a three-and-a-half-hour trek up that mountain and then God sends him back down to get Aaron and then he sends him back up like this is like an all-day thing going on and Moses comes back down with the Ten Commandments and what have the people done they have made a gold cow and Moses gets so angry that he takes his staff and he beats the gold cow into powder and he made them do what with it they had to throw it into the water from the rock and drink it for the redemption of their sins. Well, if you take perfect gold and throw it into the water from the rock, what color is the water? Red. Hope flows through suffering. Hope flows through suffering. Pishon's flowing through Kavila. The water's turning red. Fa fast forward way later, and there was this rabbi. Pretty important to us. And, 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 and some said, started thinking he might be the one. He was a new rabbi with Shmika. He was a rabbi with authority, which meant he could make up his own yoke. And, and, and this new rabbi with authority would have drawn crowds of, say, five to 10,000 people in a place where there was no automobiles. Why? Because people would have come from all over the nation to hear this new yoke that they heard might be easy and might be light. It had been easier to live. And, and he shows up at, at, his, at, at this wedding, and he performs his first miracle which was turning water into wine. Hope flows through suffering. Water's turning red. So his first miracle is for a whole group of people. He's communicating to a Hebrew audience with Hebrew ideas. He makes water turn red. Hope flows through suffering. Uh, fast forward way later, and Jesus had the worst day ever. They beat him. They mocked him. All his friends had deserted him. Everything that would mess us up psychologically for a long time. They beat him, mock him, spit on him, put crowns of thorns on his head, strap a tree to his back, make him walk up the thing. 
And after all of this, they, they can't have people hanging around on Sabbath on crosses. So, so they, they break everybody's legs except his because he was already dead. And the Roman centurion says, make sure that he's dead. And they stick a spear in his side and blood and water flowed. In other words, in the greatest suffering man has ever known, hope still was flowing. That hope still. It's almost like Jesus at his death gave anybody with any glimpse of hope Hope, because he said, look, even in my death, blood and water is going to come together. Hope flows through suffering. Hope flows through suffering. One of the greatest messages of the cross is this, is that no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, there's hope for your situation. That, that there's blood in the water, hope flows through suffering. Hope flows through suffering because, behold, the one who brings the substance for survival brings it to us in the house of God through a river of blood. A hope can flow through suffering. I, I was sitting with my mentor and, and another pastor, and this other pastor I went to Bible college with, he's very solid, he's pastored for years, and, and we were sitting around talking, and he said, he said, I got a question. So we, we he said, sure. He says, what must I do to be saved? And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, get off it. Like, what? In the, you're, you've been pastoring for years. Well, he said, no, 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 I'm serious. Of course, my mentor likes that kind of stuff. He's like, yes, let's explore this. And I'm going, oh, so, so, so what must I do to be saved? And, and so, okay, explain yourself. He said, if all you had was Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, if that's all you had, to, to the historical narratives of the Bible, if that's all you had, and, you, and I said, what must I do to be saved, what could you tell me? And I thought, right, well, let's think about that. And he said, he said, in other words, if we looked up every time Jesus or Peter or Paul or somebody important like that said, salvation has come to you, You've been forgiven. You've been made righteous. What would salvation look like? What do you have to do to get saved? What do you have to do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And, and so I started looking at this in the sense of hope flowing through suffering. And there was all these really cool stories in, 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 the, in, in the New Testament, and none of them were the same. Yet, all of their salvation experiences were legitimate. Like, there's this one guy, and, and, and his name was Zacchaeus, and, and he was a tax collector in Jericho, the, one of the richest cities around, a resort town, and, and he would have been hated by everybody, and Jesus was walking along, and there's thousands of people behind Jesus, and Jesus stops the whole crowd and gets him out of the tree, and he says, listen, I'm coming to your house to eat with you today, and Zacchaeus is so moved by the compassion of Jesus Christ that he says, look, here and now, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus says, that's it. Salvation has come to your house today. Whoa. So what must I do to be saved? Do I need to give half of what I have to the poor? Most of us would say, man, I hope not. Hmm. There, there's this one guy. His name was Paul, and he was an expert in the law. He was a master Pharisee. And he's on a donkey or something, and he's on the road to Emmaus, and this light appears and knocks him off his donkey. And, 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 and he asks Jesus a question. He says, he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, in essence, says, you already are. I'm, I've prepared a man. In other words, Zacchaeus gave half of what he had to the poor. Paul asked a question. Uh, there was this one lady in John chapter 8. There was this one lady, and she was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act. Like, in the act. Like, it'd be embarrassing enough to be caught in that act under good circumstances, much less in that. Now, now, the, now, the Torah said you could stone her. 
The Torah said you're supposed to stone her. The Mishnah, which was the Jewish compilation of civil and religious law, said that you could rough her up, you could strip her from the waist up to shame her, bring her out in public, and then stone her. So if they followed their culture, they would have beat her up a bit, they would have stripped her from the waist up, which probably wasn't necessary because they caught her in the act. And, and then they bring her out, they bring her out to Jesus. They needed Jesus, without going into that, they needed Jesus because they needed someone with authority to pass judgment, okay? So, so they bring her out to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, the, the Torah says to stone her, what do you say? And he says, you know what? You've got me there. The Torah says stone her. I have to fulfill the Torah, so I say stone her. The Torah says stone her, so I say stone her. But I also say that you can't, you can't throw stones unless you haven't sinned, which is brilliant. So everybody's sitting there, and they get tired of holding their stones, and they drop their stones, and it says he doesn't say another word till they all leave. And after they all leave, he asks a question. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here. They've all left. He says, that's right. Then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because the Torah said to stone adulterers, but the Torah also said that you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he made the witnesses go away, which automatically declared a mistrial. Hmm. This is brilliant. Which is why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ's yoke rules heaven. It's not that you don't sin. It's just there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you by the law of God. Because the law of Jesus Christ says that you can't condemn somebody unless you haven't sinned yourself. And since there's only been one who hasn't sinned, there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you under God. Hmm. Hope flows through suffering. So what's the answer? Is it to give half of what you have to the poor? Uh, Paul, Paul asked the question. Uh, this lady answered a question. She says, my accusers aren't here. And salvation came to her house. There was this one guy. He was a Roman centurion, which, which meant that he had to publicly proclaim that Caesar was the son of God. And after he, he ordered all the beatings and he ordered all this stuff and he saw Jesus took it without one word, he looks up at the crucifixion and he says, surely he was the son of God. So, so what's the answer? Is it to give half of what you have to the poor? Is it to ask the right question? Is it to answer the right question? Is it to make the right confession? The, the thief on the cross, the guy next to him, uh, in the middle of this horrible day, the thief on the cross looks over and he prays the sinner's prayer. No, he doesn't. He looks over and he says, please remember me, which is likely the only thing he had breath to say. Please remember me. And on the basis of a three-word request, Jesus says, that's it. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So, so what's, the, what's the answer then? What must I do to be saved? Is it to give half of what I have to the poor? Is it to ask the right question? Is it to answer the right question? Is it to make the right request? Is it to make the right confession? There was another centurion that came to Jesus on the road, and his daughter was sick. And Jesus said, sure, I'll go pray for your daughter. And the centurion said, no, 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 I don't want to waste your time. Um, just, just speak the word. And if you speak the word, I know she'll be healed. And Jesus said, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. Uh, uh, there, there's another time, and this is the one, before I even say this one, the only reason I'm saying this one is because it happened, and it's in red letters, and I can't make any theology work with this. I can't. So I'll just tell you up front, if anybody comes to me afterwards and says, what about that? I don't know the answer. I just know it's there, and we need to wrestle with it. And there, there was this guy, 
and he was paralyzed, and his friends pick him up on the four corners of his mat, and he lowers him down through the roof, and Jesus looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. But why did he say that? It says this. It says, Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. So what's the answer? Is it to have the right friends now? (laughs) Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. You say, Shane, what does that mean? I already told you, I don't know. Like, we, have, we would have no problem if Jesus said Jesus saw his faith and proclaimed his sins forgiven. But for Jesus to see the faith of someone else and count it to this guy as righteousness, whoa. I, I can't make any theology work with that. But I can just tell you it happened. And I can tell you we can wrestle with it. And I can tell you this, that if I was here today and I was a mother and I've been believing for my unbelieving children, I would keep on doing it. Yeah. Jesus saw the faith of his friends and proclaimed his sins forgiven. So so what's the answer? Is it to ask the right question? Is it to answer the right question? Is it to give half of what we have to the poor? Is it to make the right confession, make the right request? Is it to have the right friends? There's this one guy in in the temple, and and he's so broken about something he's done, and you don't know what he's done. But there's this Pharisee by him, and and the Pharisee says, Oh, I thank you, my God, that I'm righteous, and I'm not like this sinner. And it says the sinner in the temple beat his chest and said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, Surely that guy left righteous. Hmm. So, so is it to make a confession, uh, some sort of, uh, of request for mercy? Uh, there's this one guy, um, they call him the Philippian jailer. And, and his job was torturing people. And, and it says that, that there was this one time where he came into Paul and Silas's cell and he bandaged their wounds. And in the bandaging of the wounds, Paul said, today salvation has come to your house. He was just kind. Um, in, in, in Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 39, 40 and 41, there's this Pharisee that comes to eat with Jesus. And the Pharisee says, says, Jesus doesn't wash his hands before he eats. And the Pharisee says, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? And Jesus says to him, you fool, you make the outside of your cup and platter clean, but the inside is full of greed and all manner of wickedness. See, to Jesus, greed leads to all manner of wickedness. It was all about greed. He says, he says, you, you keep the outside of your cup and platter clean, but the inside is full of greed, which leads to all manner of wickedness. Don't you know that the one who made the outside of the cup also made the inside of the cup also? And then there's this implied question from the Pharisee. It's not written, but it's implied. Like, what should I do to fix this? And Jesus says, begin to give alms of all such things as you have to the poor, and your whole life will be made clean for you. Hmm. So, so what is it? Is it to be generous with the poor? You see that again? Um, there, there's this guy um, in Acts chapter 10. His name's Cornelius. And in a way, Cornelius is the reason we're still here today. Cornelius was chosen by God to start the whole Gentile church. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion, which meant he had to publicly proclaim that Caesar is God. When Peter, without going to read in the story, 
when, when Peter shows up at his house, what does Cornelius do to him? Bows down. So Peter shows up. Here's a guy who's publicly professed that, G, that, uh, that, that Caesar is God. When Peter shows up at his house, he bows down and worships Peter. Peter has to say, no, no, get up. I'm just a man. You don't worship a man. Now, so here's a guy who has publicly professed that Caesar is God, and he's bowing down to Peter. He doesn't know it's not right to worship a man. That's like Christianity 101. Don't worship men. Is that a guy you'd want to pastor your church? But Jesus chose him to start the whole Gentile church. Why? And Cornelius asks. Cornelius says, why me? Why me? And Peter says, because your alms to the poor has went up as a remembrance to God, and he has counted you righteous. Huh. So once again, is, is it generosity to the poor? Uh, in, in Acts chapter 2, that the crowd at, that Peter was preaching to, he said, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so, so what's the answer? You can't make a case that each individual case is not a legitimate salvation. You've got Jesus or Peter or Paul proclaiming people righteous, saved, forgiven. These are all legitimate salvation experiences. So what do we have to do? Do, do we need to give half of what we have to the poor? Do we need to ask the right question, answer the right question, beg for mercy, make the right confession, make a request? Do we need to have the right friends? Do we need to bandage people's wounds? What, what's the answer? What's the answer? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Let, let, let me, let, let me, let me um, kind of tie this all together. What was true of all of these salvation experiences? Three things were true of every one of them. They were legitimate these were legitimate salvation experiences. Number two, every one of them responded to God. Every one of them had an encounter with God and responded. And number three, every one of them made an active move away from their slave driver. And salvation came to them. Um. And I'm not even necessarily talking about heaven and hell salvation. I'm talking about being slave driver free. What was Zacchaeus' slave driver? Greed. Zacchaeus' slave driver was greed. So what did he do? He became generous. And money lost its hold on him. And he's slave driver free. And salvation came to his house. Listen, I believe in prayer and deliverance. I do. I believe in prayer and deliverance with everything I have. But I could, if your problem, if your slave driver is greed, I could pray for you till Jesus comes back and you'll still be greedy. The cure for greed is not prayer. The cure for greed is writing a check. And when you write a check and you release it, money loses its hold on you. And salvation can come to your house. Why? Because you're slave driver free now. Paul, what was Paul's slave driver? Knowing everything. He knew everything. He knew all the answers. And he finally admits, what must I do to be saved? In other words, I don't know what I'm doing. And Jesus said, okay, now you are. Hmm. What was, what was the, the lady caught in the act of adultery? What was her slave driver? Guilt and condemnation. And Jesus makes all the witnesses go away, so there's no guilt and condemnation. And slave driver leaves. What, the Philippian jailer, what was his slave driver? Cruelty. He had to be cruel. 
And, and what does he do? He becomes kind, and cruelty loses its hold on his life, and salvation comes to his house. Um, the, 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 the thief on the cross moves away from his slave driver by responding to God, and, and salvation comes to his house. I'm here to tell you today that no matter where you are, hope can flow through suffering because there's blood in the water. There is a way out of your slave driver. That, That no matter how deep embedded in that slave driver you are, hope can still flow. Hope can still flow. I I bless you today to know that you're serving a God who's not just interested in you going to heaven one day. He's interested in bringing heaven to your hell today. Yeah. That, that, That he's not just interested in you spending eternity with him. He's interested in spending your life with you. Yeah. I bless you today to know that there's a river called Pishon and it's flowing through the whole land of Kavila for your life. That whatever in your life is causing you suffering, whatever slave driver is causing you pain, hope can flow through suffering. Salvation is here. Mm. I love that song. I don't even know who wrote it. I just love it. It says, and I know my God saves the day, and I know his word never fails, and I know my God makes a way for me because salvation is here. Yeah. That, that I bless you today to know that hope, that there's still blood in the water. There is still blood in the water, and you and I can live slave driver free. Let's pray together. Lord, you're the best. And I wonder if if we could just do some business with God right now and and just be honest because it's just between you and God. And I'll let you in on this. He already knows whatever it is. So so if if it's just, I'm not asking you to raise your hand or anything yet. I'm just just asking you to do business with God. And, And you could ask yourself some questions. What is your slave driver? What is your slave driver? What's your slave driver? Is it rejection, anger, bitterness, rage, malice, slander, filthy language? Is is it a tendency to go back to the same thing? What's your slave driver? Number two, have you cried out to God because of it? Or have you hid it? And why don't you just take this moment right now. This will be a free, you will leave here feeling so much better if you'll do this. It's just right now under your breath, not out loud. Just right there under your breath, just between you and God, just admit to God and own whatever your slave driver is. Lord, I struggle with this, and it rules my life sometimes. Please help me. Just go ahead and tell him again. You'll feel better. Get off your chest. Yeah. Yeah, you just feel better. You say, Lord, I, I struggle with rejection and worry. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, sometimes worry just rules my life. It rules my thoughts at night. Oh, you'll just feel better. Next question, are are you saved in the sense of you're going to heaven, but you still go back to your slave driver? Let me ask it this way. If heaven and hell isn't the issue, is Jesus still worth following? course he's still worth following because he has the best way of life if you could go to heaven without jesus you can't but if you could he'd still have the best way of life 
where does salvation need to come to your house today? Where? With head bowed and eyes closed, I'd like to ask two questions. Number one, is there anybody here today, I could just sense God calling people, I can feel the presence of God in this place. And I wonder if there's anybody here who'd say, Shane, I need to cross the line. I need to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. I need hope to flow through suffering for me. I need to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life today. I need to, I need to shore up. I know we were talking about um, salvation on earth mostly, but, but, um, but, but I need to shore up this whole eternal thing.